Welcome back to another episode of the CSK8 podcast. My name is Jared O'Leary. In this week's interview, I am chatting with Joanna Good. In our discussion, we talk about corporate influence through neoliberal practices in computer science education. We also discuss reflecting on engaging all students in computer science programs, some considerations around equity and inclusion in CS education, various layers of curriculum design and implementation, and how those often don't always align, discussing and problematizing integration, some of the influences of policy and administrative support, or the lack of, as well as Joanna's experience with developing the curriculum called Exploring Computer Science. You can find a link to that curriculum in the show notes, as well as links to many other resources, such as other podcasts on similar topics, and so much more. You can find that by going to jaredoleary.com or clicking the link in your show notes. I really hope you enjoy this interview. I was nodding my head vigorously while listening to Joanna. As much as what she described is very much so in alignment with my approach to curriculum and experience design. All right, so we will now begin this interview with an introduction by Joanna. Good morning. I am Joanna Good, Professor of Education Studies at the College of Education at the University of Oregon. I'm on the Kalapuya Elihi, the ancestral land of the Kalapuya today. I come to the University of Oregon originally from California and I began my scholarly career at UCLA. I was a applied math major, specialization with computing, loved the computing programming parts of mathematics, so took some extra courses there. I have always loved teaching and being a teacher in various ways, and I knew education was somewhere in my future, so I entered the teacher education program at UCLA, became a high school mathematics computer science teacher for five years before returning to graduate school and working on my PhD in urban schooling also at UCLA. So... I come today as a researcher, as a former high school classroom teacher. I also work in teacher education. And as I'm keenly aware of on a daily basis, I'm also a parent of three children who are now Zoom schooling as we speak. Oh, how things have changed. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. If you were to write a book about your journey up until now in CS education, what would the title of the chapters be? This is a great question. I think the first chapter would be called Making and Making Do, a story of my childhood experiences. I grew up with immigrant parents who were middle class, maybe lower middle class in terms of their early careers, but very much tinkers. My dad was an auto mechanic and my mother was a seamstress. My mother ended up being an accountant and taking some programming classes on the side. My dad built candy cane lane decorations in our local neighborhood, merry-go-rounds and carousels and interactive robots without having any digital knowledge. So all mechanically designed. And he was out of school at 14 in post-World War II England and didn't have much of a formal education and yet could create all these innovative tools these creations, if you will. And it was all about the children. So it was all about supporting kids, making them smile, have fun. And so that was my upbringing was this really lovely making hands-on, seeing what materials you have around the house and using those to create. And 
that leads us to chapter two, which I would say would be when my dad brought home a Commodore 64. <laughs> they were on sale at Kmart that Christmas. My dad said, I don't know what it is exactly, but I know it's going to be important. Let me put it in the corner of the storage room. And I was the person in the family who sort of went back there and started coding and learned a little bit about the Commodore 64. But that was a really important moment in our family to have that investment and to see the promise, not really understand the promise, but to see that promise of what this personal computer might be able to do. Right. And the joy of it being sold at Kmart was extra special because it was seen as something much more for the people than something that was at a specialty technology store, for example. Hmm. I think the next chapter of this journey through CS education might be the myth of access in CS education. Hmm. I had the luxury of one semester of programming class in sixth grade. It was during the 1980s. It was a little trend at the time, but it was a required elective for all students. And I didn't realize until much later what a gift that was to just have that initial exposure. And so when I tinkered in computing through college, I recognized that I was one of very few women in those courses. None of my friends were in those courses. It felt chilly. I thought about that. I didn't realize the systemic inequities. And then when I went to teach high school and I thought, great, I'll sign up to be the computer science teacher. The other teacher was retiring. He was well on his way out. And I thought, hey, if I'm the role model and I can start a recruitment plan and I can create this access of this incredibly diverse high school, maybe things will change. And what I learned was my individual efforts made small changes they weren't making these systemic changes that I knew were really important. Yeah. Part of that school environment, I was very fortunate to be under the leadership of Principal Dr. Sylvia Rousseau, who was a remarkable educator, member of the community. She's about five feet tall, soft-spoken Black woman. She was trilingual, I think. And we had some major problems at our school, but she was doing restorative justice before we really had that language. And it was a school-wide restorative justice on a variety of incidents from some of the gang violence around the school to also the tracking that was going on with our classes and the role of teachers within that. So we had inquiry groups. We were examining our own practices. And this computer science piece was just so important that I knew it had such power and privilege associated with it. Mm -hmm. But most of the discourse around tracking was about mathematics and AP history and so forth. So I knew something was there. And I thank Dr. Rousseau for encouraging me to go on to graduate school to explore this further from a scholarly perspective but also with the experience of real classroom teaching right. and struggling with these issues with my colleagues, not as an individual venture. From there, I would say the next chapter is stuck in the shallow end, which is maybe a book. <laughs> At that point, I bumped into Jane Margolis and, and she was in the finishing touches of her first book, Unlocking the Clubhouse, when we met and writing this grant to explore computer science in K-12 or in high schools, specifically around race and gender and access. The next chapter would be, it's all about the teachers because I feel 
that after Stuck in the Shallow End came out, one of the major takeaways was the tremendous influence that teachers have, not only in their classroom settings, but also the agency that they can have for addressing inequities at the school level, that it's not just administrators making decisions top down, it's teachers collectively deciding on curriculum and professional development and supporting one another. And so I think the teachers has been a major focus of mine, both in the teacher education work, but also in the research in recent years because of the importance that those teachers play. And I think maybe now I'm in a phase of look out for the sharks. I feel like there's a lot of easy solutions for an incredibly complex problem around access and equity in computing education. I think we increasingly need to name neoliberalism. We need to think hard about the approaches that we have and relationships with corporations and how those might influence which children and which education they're getting. I think increasingly I'm troubling myself with naming whiteness and patriarchy in every single step of our curriculum, pedagogy, policies, it's everywhere. And until we can sort of move from the deficit nature of why aren't those underrepresented kids groups in here and start saying, well, why might they not want to be here? Yes. That's going to start, I think, moving the conversation. And then ultimately, I hope we end up with a chapter called Computing as Literacy for Justice, that computing becomes seen as not a one course or one lesson, but as a literacy that we fundamentally believe every child every community person, every adult even, deserves to have as part of their engagement with society and with one another. Yeah, I like that. It sounds like the work that you're doing, like you're going for effect size in terms of the impact that you want to have. Maybe I'm projecting like why I initially went into getting a PhD, but like when I was in the classroom, I was like, this is great. I'm able to have an impact on a few hundred kids. But then I was like, but what if I work with teachers then I'd indirectly be having an impact on thousands of kids. And then like when I'm working at the nonprofit right now, like we're working with a million more kids this year. So like the impact is like, it's indirect, but like it's much bigger than I would have had staying in the classroom. Am I projecting or is that also related to your approach? I think that's exactly right. And I think it doesn't come with some loss though, because I think of those relationships I had with my high school students. Mm -hmm. And certainly I have relationships with teachers I work with, but there is a different sort of engagement with the work. So I think of impact in terms of the numbers, but I also, you know, in true honesty, miss some of that individual deep, 180 days worth of instruction impact with students. Right. But yes, I think that is an accurate summary of growing, sort of zooming out and thinking more systemically about impact through believing and supporting classroom educators in particular. One of the other things that caught my ear was your mention of neoliberalism and the impact of corporation on education. So I wrote a co-authored a paper for a music education journal that talked about neoliberalism in relation to music technology and how the hardware that we use and the software that we use are being designed by people who aren't educators, who don't have experience in the classroom, who are selling us things for their own gain without taking into account how people are using them. And so we kind of unpack like 
there are people who are taking the hardware and going, well, I wanted to do this instead, so I'm going to modify it. And there are people who are taking software and doing the same thing, or they're creating their own hardware and their own software. So like, it's circumventing the, the narrative of everything has to come from a corporation and saying, yeah, well, what if I want to modify it to do this? Could you expand upon what does neoliberalism look like in relation to CS education and what might we as educators actually do to combat that? Yeah, great question. I think in CS education, I think neoliberalism for me falls in answering some of the questions that we should be asking. For example, who created this and for what purpose is one question. Who is paying for this and what do they hope to get out of this when they're paying for this? And do I even know who I can ask these questions of? Mm And then I also think that there's a move to individualize and to make things about individual choice or personalization or data analytics being faster, better, somehow more effective. And we just don't have the research on that. What we do know from the research is that learning is a social practice that we do with other people, not something that is customized by data analytics being measured. So I think we can see some of the results of these products often having promises about their effectiveness, which are not based in any sort of data, or if they are, they're based in the analytics from the same company itself. So in some ways, we don't put those innovations through the same scrutiny that we even do for a social studies textbook, if you will. And then I think we're, you know, increasingly asking students to turn over their personal data to these corporations. That gives me some pause. One of the most close to home examples of this right now is that our state has decided to require an ed TPA exam at the end of our teacher education program. So even though these students have come in and they've taken their tests, They've done their student teaching. They've passed all their courses. They still have to videotape themselves, fill out prompts, send it away to a company, pay that company an extra three or $400. These are pre-service teachers trying to make it through a graduate program. They don't have a lot of extra funds. And then it's an extra few hundred dollars to a corporation to externally score it and send it back to them about whether or not that they can become a teacher. So the stakes are very high. And what's been particularly insidious is that this exam, like many others that occur across K-12, keep our teachers of color from getting teaching licenses. So our indigenous teachers are having a harder time passing this. Our native Spanish language speakers are not passing a Spanish speaking portion. And those are our teachers who we hope might become computing teachers or diversify the teaching force. And then so you can look at it through who do we allow to be the teachers in these classrooms to what are some of the neoliberal forces that allow a superintendent and a test taking company make a curriculum deal that trickles down that may or may not be a good idea. Yeah. So I think we have lots of those examples about what happens when decision-making is made at the top. It doesn't bring in educators who know the communities, no teaching and learning, no curriculum. And ultimately, you know, answering those questions about who is benefiting and what do they hope to grow out of this. I think in computer science specifically, what is 
truly problematic is that we're often funding in terms of this illusion of a pipeline or the idea that we're, you know, these people are investing in computer science education. They're not investing in literature or language arts, right? Because they're hoping to have a more technologically knowledgeable workforce and so on. They're not concerned with the struggling students in the class. They're concerned with the top, you know, creating conditions that will be their future workforce that are the cream of the crop. Right. So in some ways, we start reproducing the social norms of technology industry, which have those characteristics of whiteness and patriarchy. And so I think that neoliberal cycle of having these same corporations fund schools, fund programs, and then hope that those people come back into that same industry can, you know, perpetuate some of the inequities and exclusions that we see in the field. And what led to your interest in access and equity and wanting to research in particular underrepresented students of color and females, et cetera? I think it really was as a classroom teacher when I was cycling between my 7.20 a.m. AP computer science class, which you know, talk about structurally by design, excluding people it was a zero period. And I would go from that space and it was almost all white and Asian boys and one or two girls the first year. And then I would pop into my repeat algebra class first period down the hall and it would be almost all boys again, a few girls. But those students were majority Latinx and Black boys in that classroom. And then I was coaching the swim team. And I was thinking, how are these spaces so gendered Mm. and so racialized? And it's so normed. And we are in one of the most progressive schools around with a strong social justice leader. Something is going on here. And why isn't anybody looking at this systematically like this was my college experience so i know it's happening and really the only literature or readings i could find was a little early digital divide about access to computers and the internet nobody was talking about access to computing knowledge certainly not in the k-12 space i think the last part was i went to one of the college board trainings around the ap computer science test designed to help bring people in and prepare people. And it just, this was not a topic of conversation. And I remember feeling so disconnected from some of the professional discourse with my colleague teachers around our equity justice centered pedagogy, and then what computer science felt like. And that really propelled me towards graduate school to figure out really what was going on with computing as a field, that it could create such conditions that this would become so normalized, nobody would even point it out as segregation, really. And were you interested in and aware of like liberatory pedagogical practices before meeting your principal, or did they introduce you to this different approach to education that's often not talked about? Yeah, so I was fortunate that UCLA had a great relationship with the high school that I worked at. So the placement was purposeful. And my teacher education mentor, Dr. Barbara Wells, she was a math educator, but she really brought in a much more liberatory education piece as a math educator. So she gave me a lot of the language and a lot of the background and really some of that real talk about, okay, well, you're 
saying these things or you want to have this impact, what is your pedagogy going to do in math education to get you there with these students? You're teaching this repeat algebra class. What are you doing differently than what happened last year <laughs> so that they're not repeating a third time? So these conversations were very much a part of my training. I was very fortunate to have both her and Dr. Sylvia were so these two very strong Black women educators who themselves had lots of experience in the classroom and leadership, really setting that foundation for what it means to be a good teacher. And a good teacher isn't concerned with the top 50% of the class. A good teacher is concerned with the children in the classroom. Yeah, it sounds like you're in a very fortunate place and space to be able to explore those topics and whatnot. There are a lot of places that I know education-wise you're unable to do that, whether it's because of the kids you work with, it's too homogenized for different reasons, or because of the teacher education program you go into. They just simply don't talk about this. They focus on pedagogy that is not related to liberatory pedagogy and whatnot. So that sounds wonderful that you had that. I'm curious. So I did the unpacking scholarship episode of that paper that you wrote from 2008 that was like kind of talking about, well, what are some strategies that we can do to get at access and equity and like try and improve some of those areas. But what has changed or kind of remained the same in those last 12 or so years since you wrote that paper in terms of recommendations that you would give? Sure. So I think actually in rereading that paper and listening to your podcast, it was fun to revisit some of the ideas and to see what's aged and what has not aged iPods are out, (laughs) so that is one technology that is not familiar, but I would revisit a few of the ideas and maybe deepen them with some systemic understandings. I think this was written a little bit more for teachers themselves, but I think that critical bifocality of what can I do in the classroom with learners and also what is the more systemic influences And rather than say, I can't, you know, that's not for me, here's my walls, to think about those two together. So I might add, you know, over the past 12 years that recruitment looks different. I think we want to have much more of a school-wide responsibility, not on one teacher to do so much of that labor of recruitment. So how can school counselors have their own education programs like Counselors for Computing, administrators, and have a common understanding about who computing is for everybody and how the school should recruit or put place students in particular classes or settings. Maybe as computer science becomes for all, we don't have to talk about recruitment. That would also be a hope because We don't talk about recruiting for algebra. We place students in mathematics classes, right? You do some tracking there, but we place students in those classes. We don't have to recruit. It's because it's still considered an enrichment project, which for many people, enrichment signals a sort of privileged people that belong in that class. So that's one point. I think another piece would be for pedagogy, powerful pedagogy. I would also ask teachers and educators to consider having some goals and metrics so that they can hold themselves accountable for that pedagogy. What does it mean to make sure that English language learners are involved? Or how are students with special accommodations learning the conceptual knowledge? 
So really thinking about engaging all students, not just from that pedagogy perspective, but that how do I know I'm doing what I think I'm doing? I think there's always room for reflection there, myself included. You videotape yourself one time, you'll see those areas for growth. So I think having some goals so you know what to look for can be really helpful. Otherwise, it's improving, but not really knowing if you are or not. One of the things that I'd probably add on to like the metrics that you look at, one of the things that you can look at is more qualitative in terms of, well, what do students actually perceive? Are they enjoying this class? Well, why are they enjoying this? What do they not like about the subject area? And like diving into that as a thing that you look into, not just what are they learning, but like, do they want to continue their learning when the class is over? That's exactly right. Do they feel like a part of this classroom learning community? right? What a powerful thing. And how do you measure that? That's exactly right. And being purposeful and intentional in what that looks like. Because kids don't necessarily remember learning loops on a Tuesday of February. They remember how they felt in that classroom and how they felt as a learner and how they were treated by the teacher and other students. Mm -hmm. And I think keeping that in mind, you know, feelings are hard to measure, but just being mindful can help that ecosystem a little bit more carefully. What about some strategies around equity and and access in today's world? So we have all these virtual environments that people are learning computer science through Zoom, et cetera. Like, do you have recommendations for that that are specific to that kind of environment? Because like, it's much easier to see now, oh, this kid doesn't have stable internet connection or this kid doesn't even have a device. Like things that were occurring outside of the classroom are now much more obvious to a lot of classroom teachers to go, oh, they actually don't have the ability to go home and work on this for A, B, or C reasons. Yes, it's an impossible situation, Jared. I'm not sure the equity issues are so bright right now. It's blinding in a way that if you go one direction, there's excluding people. If you go another direction, you're excluding people. I think the major equity issue that I've seen so far is not taking care of teachers, Mm. that teachers are the ones who would be able to put together the packet for students who need the packet. And they're also the ones to deliver the synchronous instruction for the students who that's the way they're thriving and that's the best situation. They're also the best ones to create that learning environment. The teachers are everything. And yet we've asked them to do much more with brand new tools with very little support. And the teachers who are feeling that in particular are the ones in school systems which have already struggled with inequities and overworking teachers, particularly BIPOC communities and BIPOC teachers and families, teachers with caretaking responsibilities. So I think for students, we're very, very aware of digital divide issues. We're not so aware of the other issues going on at home because we just don't know what other family issues are and whether it's students you know, needing to remember to log on themselves because their parents aren't home or if there's mental health issues. I think teachers have a hard time knowing exactly what's going on, which is part of the challenge. Mm -hmm. But I suspect that if we had smaller class sizes and extra helpers with those educators, it would make the job more doable. So if we don't expect that teachers who used to have 35 students are now delivering instruction in multiple ways for 35 students, maybe three different ways, 
that's a big task. What if we put more funds towards doubling those teachers? So I think the equity issues are everywhere in everything. However, I think the way to have the biggest impact in addressing some of those equity issues are investing in the professional learning and some professional planning time for teachers so they're not working around the clock and burning themselves out. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I asked like the question towards the end of the interview is like, how do you take care of yourself and like release a supercut of that in September for like National Suicide Prevention Month? Because like, this is a very real thing that as educators, we need to focus on is how to prevent that. I'm curious, I like talking through ideas where it's like, oh, I thought this was going to work really well, but it ended up not. What ideas have you had or heard around like equity and access that like on paper sounded like it was going to go great and then it didn't in implementation for whatever reason? A lot of the equity and access that is around particular programs or courses that either are not sustaining over time and here I go again, do not have that professional development piece really give me pause. And the reason why is it's really easy to say somebody watched a webinar and now 1.5 million people are impacted. But what we know is that to change teacher practice, it takes, you know, a year and a half, 80 plus more hours of sustained engagement, arguably a learning community that over time that fosters that improvement. So I think the idea that this is is an easy fix, and if we just came up with a new curriculum or a new AP class or a new outreach project, or if we just, you know, made this program with some more keen advertising, I think that doesn't necessarily have that long sustained impact. It might. We just don't have any evidence of it. So all those great ideas, I often look at people's commitments and I'm struck by the level of care and great ideas that go into those programs or approaches. But I often pause and think, well, how do we know if there's actual impact for all that work and great ideas? Are they actually getting out there and how do we know? And so I think without having some of that classroom-based research, this is where I think research and practice are really nice and complementary, without having the research to mirror back to practitioners, program people, curriculum developers, to say, this is what's working, this is what teachers might be struggling with, or might need more preparation, or might say, this doesn't fit, and we need to retool I think when that communication is open and that design process is more longitudinal, that's when I have a little bit more hope that things will stick over time. Yeah, I hope so. And what you just described really resonates with like our approach to professional development. So like we do district-wide implementation. If you're interested in like just doing an after-school or gifted, talented class, like, no, that's not what we do. When we do it, it's no, this is not a one-off workshop and all of a sudden you're going to know everything you need to know about CS education. Like we go for a minimum of a year, ideally two to three years of professional development. Every quarter we'll come back like, hey, we learned this new thing. How did it go? All right, now we're going to dive deeper and learn something else. And one of the things that we've noticed with districts is it's often like in the second year in particular when they start going oh, this thing that we've been exploring, it can actually be done with kids. And like, now that you've modeled it with my kids, now I actually believe you. Like, so 
all these little things have to go into place to make it so the teachers will actually buy into it. And doing like a one-off webinar, like while that's nice, it's not going to solve like these equity and access issues or whatever you're trying to focus on. Yes, I'm nodding vigorously because exactly the same experience. We have one lesson in the Exploring Computer Science curriculum, the Cornrows lesson. It's built off of Ron Eglash's culturally situated design tools. Well, we first started incorporating this lesson in our professional development program because the first couple of years after this curriculum was released in Los Angeles, our teachers reported that that was one of the lessons they were not really teaching because they didn't quite know how. And we thought that makes it a great candidate for one of these teaching lessons where teachers practice teaching the lessons to one another in the professional development. We have a discussion about the lesson after it's taught. And so we've started incorporating it into the lessons. And what we've learned is when those second year teachers return for professional development, they start having the conversation along with the first year teachers who are, say things like, well, I don't know if I should teach this. I'm in an all white community or I'm a black teacher and I'm in a you know, majority white community and I don't know if I feel safe teaching this. What are some strategies I might use? And suddenly we have these second year teachers in the room saying, last year I felt just like you, but I tried it and here's what I did. And it wasn't scary after all. And actually my students have you know, responded how happy they were to A, be in the curriculum because back to whiteness, we default to whiteness and don't name that, but we named the one lesson on cornrows as something maybe scary or troubling to teach in a computer science public school classroom. And so we have these great conversations, but it's because those second year teachers are saying, I did this, here's some strategies. The first year teachers are starting to name some of their discomforts, working through that, coming up with a pedagogical plan. And then they become sort of that mentors in the community the following year. And I think that's really an example of if we did this sort of lesson or curriculum and just handed it out and didn't have that long-term professional growth, we could say this is in the curriculum, but we could probably also conclude that very few teachers would feel prepared to teach it. And so being in the curriculum is fairly useless if it's not enacted by teachers. And I think that's that fine point we don't say often enough about what is the enacted curriculum in the classroom, not the designed curriculum, but is the enacted curriculum. I'm glad you brought that up. One of the unpacking scholarship episodes I did was talking about how there's the different layers, like there's the intended, there's the enacted, there's the embodied, there's like all these layers of curriculum that you have to like get into. And it's like, well, what was designed versus what was taught versus what was understood versus what is like embodied later on? like. What is the hidden implications that were unintentionally taught? Like these are the layers I love to nerd out on when it comes to designing curriculum and thinking about them like after the fact. But oddly enough, like not enough people in CSED are talking about that. Like it's like, oh, I made this new fancy shiny thing. Okay, but like <laughs> there's a lot more to this. People have been talking about this for a very long time. You should look at the, the scholarship on it. Well, I think that for so long in our community, computer science has been king, so to speak. Mm that the content knowledge has almost been weaponized mm. to keep out people who know about teaching and learning. But you weren't a major in this, so step aside. I went to Stanford, let me create something, and you teachers go do it because computer science is everything. 
And I think that as a field, we are not very welcoming of other expertise that doesn't begin with a college major in computer science, yeah. which perpetuates the patriarchy and whiteness because it becomes a barrier to even be in K-12 CS education when it becomes weaponized as you don't really know, let us do the curriculum pieces because we know what this field is about. Yeah, that's a really important point. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm curious, taking it back to like individual classroom educator, they love computer science, they want to do it in their class or their school, their district, etc. What advice would you give for them to try and kind of develop these grassroots movements to implement CS across the district or school or even just a class? One of the first pieces would be to have a team or a coalition of people. So again, it's not all the work, all the institutional work on one educator. I think what happens is that one educator has the vision, designs the vision, enacts the vision, and then might leave schools or retire or do something else. And then we have no sustainability plan. Mm. So I think... The first piece is to really make sure that it is an effort that involves some school and district people and not just person. And with that, I would say that part of that team should be people who are already focused on equity and inclusion efforts. Because if those people aren't part of the design team, they have that expert knowledge about what works. They run those programs. And if we're really committed to equity and inclusion, then those are the first people at the table, along with the counselors and administration, so that you have that administrative support along with the teacher knowledge as well. So I think having that team is really critical for the perspectives and for the sustainability and that equity focus. I think equity and anti-racism has to be at the heart of any efforts. It cannot be an add-on otherwise we've baked whiteness into the cake and added a little diversity frosting. And (laughs) that doesn't quite work in terms of changing the flavor of what we're trying to do, I think. So I think that's really, it's about the people and about that commitment from the beginning. And then I think at that level, once those people are in place, really thinking carefully about what curriculum and what professional supports are available that meet the needs of the community, of the grade bands, and of the particular students and teachers. I think that will probably look different. I think it will be cool when we have more place-based examples of what computing can look like. I think one really exciting place is to have teachers plan together One teacher can't do all that interdisciplinary work, but a few teachers with shared students can do amazing things. And I think computing really gives lots of different options for interdisciplinary work when we have those content sort of teachers at the table to think through what that means. So that might be one fun approach to begin. Of course, there's curriculum that is already out there that has that professional development if it's a good fit for people. But I wouldn't necessarily start there. It's starting with the people and a needs assessment of the particular school and community and how computing can help 
propel probably some of their already existing goals and initiatives rather than be one more mandate type policy that has to be you know checked off something that's more organic and meets the needs of the students and community do you have advice specifically for teachers who are like experts in other subject areas who want to also engage with or incorporate computer science in particular? Yeah, I think one is to, if they have a computer science teacher or colleague to buddy up, that's always a good plan. And if not, I think there are increasingly programs that will start to give teachers these interdisciplinary ways of thinking about computing. But I think, you know, not so many are as focused in that formal education. I think what's missing and what makes it difficult to give advice is how do you tell a teacher who has 24 mandates in six other subject areas how to get started with a seventh subject area? And so getting started might have to be what are you already teaching and how can you layer and infuse computing within that? So you're teaching about the election. Let's talk about modeling. You're teaching about social studies. Let's talk about archival processes and different forms of media. And there's lots of ways in. Frankly, maybe this is my bias as a teacher educator. We're not gonna be able to give PD to all existing in-service K-12 teachers. And if we do a little five minutes for everybody means nobody for everybody. So I hope that pre-service teacher education departments like my own are really taking this seriously and thinking about how are we preparing and infusing this throughout all of our courses? How is this computing education replacing the old ed tech you know, they don't need to learn how to use smart boards. They're beyond that. We can do other things. And I think that's really the place where we're going to be able to start exploring ideas because the cohort of math educators are learning and talking about math together. And they're also getting a little computing. And the science educators are talking about science together and thinking about computing. And the way we've set up education in the United States, once they go out to schools, most schools, districts provide little if if any, professional development. So this is the place where a lot of those professional conversations and dispositions are being seeded. And it's not too late. Obviously, growth mindset teachers are lifelong learners, but it's a much easier investment, if you will, to think about infusing this knowledge within this new cohort of teachers who are going to go out to the schools each year. But that's a very slow process in terms of educational reform. It's a hard nut to crack because I don't know how else we do it without a lot of one-offs. And if we look at the history of education in the United States, the one-offs will always benefit the privileged. So we do it systemically. We're going to grow computer science and we are going to maintain the achievement gap or education debt, to borrow from Dr. Gloria Ladson Billings. Is that a success if we're growing, you know, computer science for all, but we look at the numbers and we've grown computer science and we've either maintained or perhaps even widened or perhaps stratified the digital inequities in computing. So that's what keeps me up at night, that how do we recommend and grow computer science 
without it being the schools that serve the most privileged reaping the most benefits. I'm curious from a, a teacher education perspective and with your understanding of curriculum development and whatnot, how do you encourage educators to consider whether or not the interdisciplinary experiences that they're designing are complementary in nature or are problematic in terms of being subservient. So as an example, like when I used to teach music classes, like I had a math teacher come up and be like, oh, well, I want you to create a song to teach math facts. That was using music in a subservient relationship to math. Like it had no creative abilities on the students in related to music. They're literally just going to sing math facts. Another example in computer science, there's like a dozen or so papers that I can readily point to that in the abstract, it says the purpose of creating this interdisciplinary course was to increase enrollment in computer science classes. That is putting whatever other subject area you pair this with in a subservient relationship to computer science. So how do you help educators understand that there are problematic and unproblematic ways of actually combining multiple disciplines in some kind of educational experience? Oh, that is a great question, because I think back to my earlier comment about computer science being weaponized as a knowledge, right, like that you can't really teach this because you don't really know the ontology, the epistemology, you don't know this discipline deeply. And yet that is also a fair characterization if we held it steady with other ways of knowing, right? You don't have a, you know, an education degree, so you're talking about education. So as we put these things together, I think it's not only the disciplinary knowledge we make subservient, we also think about who gets to make those decisions, who's coming in with the funding. It's not the language arts people coming in with funding and saying, hey, please partner with me. I have funding. It's the other way around. So those power issues are so huge when we think about who's gotten the most funding. What is this infusion of money into schools? It's not writing a check to the principal's discretionary fund. It's for computer science education or computing across the disciplines. Or So I think there's also, we're not coming in with these disciplines really on the same political ground that they're being privileged in different ways. Maybe one in the school system because it's being assessed in high stakes tests and the other from these outside entities because jobs and national security and CS is everything. And so it's the little apples and oranges as it comes together because whose odds wins out? And if it gets to where the school says, hey, we have so many other mandates, we're already an underperforming school, maybe that will win out and computer science will sort of go away because it doesn't have that same power in the way that the school's culture has been set up via policies, right, and mandates. So that's another worry. To get to your question, when we put these subjects areas together, I think that whole situated context of what's going around, whose eyes are looking on it, does somebody have to file a report somewhere? Or is this just two teachers having a conversation over a cocktail napkin on a Friday night about a really cool instructional plan and how they might do justice to both disciplines? And I think when we can get into that situation where school structures allow these professional conversations to happen and the discourse to happen amongst educators who have that pedagogical content knowledge in their discipline as well as their knowledge, and then we can have like that sort of 
speed dating mashup of ideas that I think would be incredibly generative. And we could say, no, I'm not doing that song with your math facts. No way. Let me explain to you what music is about. And I think only then, I don't think we can package it. I think we need to create the conditions which allow professional people who have these knowledge, have shared students, understand where their students already are, come up with wonderful ideas and then try them out in their classrooms. And I think that's where the most hope for the in-service teachers to really do thoughtful, infused, interdisciplinary work. I'm not sure that any single program can really do it because it takes those sets of knowledge that no one person might necessarily have. It sounds like you are a special person in terms of your music and computing knowledge, but not everybody has deep knowledge in multiple fields. Yeah. So for pre-service educators, then would you recommend experimentation and collaboration and communication? Like it's all about that just try things out, have some dialogue with other people and reflect on what you're doing. Like, what do you recommend for that person who's just about to become a full-time teacher? And they're like, I want to do this thing, but like, I know there's all these like hegemonic influences and like all the power structures that be like, what do I do? How do you help them out? I think this is where you dive into the deep end in terms of teachers. I think if they're asking those questions, that's a great place to be. I'm a big believer on the critical praxis cycle of thinking about a particular goal in your classroom that's influenced by theory and research, and then going through sort of a study cycle in your own classroom and on your own classroom teaching experience, back to setting the goals and thinking about metrics. And then am I doing this? Well, yes, I probably am furthering hegemonic but what can I do next time to further disrupt that, right? Because any of us who have taught in the classroom know that like, please don't come visit me my first year. I'm just trying things out. I will get better. And that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. But the second year, we should be seeing things get better. And then the third year, but it's not getting better into settling on the perfect, I'm going to date myself, transparency slide. It's not like this is day four of the curriculum. I have perfected my teaching practice, but it's digging deeper into those questions and simultaneously considering, you know, the content, the pedagogy, the student experience, the climate of the classroom, and your own growth as an educator to go deeper and harder each year, because that's, you know, we don't, want to be in complacency. That's not a goal of teaching and education. It's adjusting and growing as well along with our students, but maybe in a different way. Yeah, I like that. That really resonates with my own approach. I would have students come back to the classroom, whatever subject area is working with, and be like, why don't we do it this way when I was in the class? Well, because every year I'm like trying new things and iterating and learning and etc. But I say that having worked in a district where like, They mandated specific lesson plans on specific days, and it was the same every single year. You weren't allowed to change them. You had to be teaching the exact same thing every day. It wasn't evolving with the times. It wasn't changing with student interests and needs. Or this particular district had over 50 elementary schools, and all 50 of them were very different in terms of like demographics and needs and interests, etc. But they all were teaching the exact same thing. It's like, okay, this is not ideal. Like... Who is this easy for? Is it for you as an administrator, for the teachers, or for the students? Because it doesn't seem like you're really taking into account what the students want to learn. 
it's almost a colorblind view of what, you know, equality looks right. Everybody's on the same page, right? This is fair. Yeah, that definitely hits home. The very first class that I taught in that district was, it was supposed to be a class on like singing about being back to school and it was all in English. And the class that I was working with, not a single one of the kids spoke English and it was a three grade level combined class. So I was like, all right, well, already on the very first lesson, your curriculum is not designed for these kids. <laughs> so fail right off the bat. So one of the things that I'm interested in is influences on, like we talked about hegemonic influences and whatnot. So how does policy and administrators like influence what happens in the classroom? So how does the support or lack of influence computer science implementation in the day-to-day? So I think a few different ways. One of the primary ways is policymakers and administrators are often, particularly in middle school and high school spaces, deciding where it gets placed into the curriculum, which seems like a, oh, it's a victory. It's at the school. And often policy, you know, checkbox policy has CSs offered at the school. But I think the placement into the curriculum is something we don't talk about quite enough because if it's placed into the advanced placement curriculum, if the introduction to computer science becomes AP, then suddenly we've designed a learning experience that, again, is targeting students who identify with AP, who might think of themselves as AP students who already have that college-bound identity, who might have some confidence. And it's a space that is already marked for a particular set of students and a place that is marked as not for other students. Mm -hmm. So I think that decision automatically, much like at my own high school, that's where the computer science course was placed. It was an AP course. And then even worse, at my school experience, it was placed as a zero period. So before the buses came, so unless you had transportation to the school early on, it was difficult to have access to that course. So I think that administrator decision about like, oh, well, we want to grow computer science. Oh, AP, let's pop that in. Similarly, but the other side of the coin that I'm increasingly seeing is the career technology education standalone courses. And when I say standalone, the ones that aren't also marked as academic credit, because some are, some aren't. And what those do is pretty similar to the idea of AP is I'm a CTE student. I, this is my future career trajectory. If here's a competing class. Okay. Well, that's me because A, I'm already thinking CTE and B, this is going to be my trajectory. Imagine us offering math or language arts like that, like either putting it in the highly academically elite or vocationally themed program and not in the regular curriculum that's accessible for all students. Right. So that's a choice, but as significant repercussions in terms of which students have access to the course and what are potential future opportunities for those particular students. So I think that is a major choice decision that principals, administrators, policymakers are making without really diving in and saying, how can we put a course in this part of the curriculum 
and use the equity language when we already know those places in the curriculum have some pretty staggering racial and also gender discrepancies about who occupies that space and who that space is marked for. That's one piece. And I think the other piece is policymakers and administrators underestimating the need for this ongoing teacher support and professional development, thinking that they are signed up for a program and thus like we bought the curriculum, we're done here. And I don't know that that's necessarily administrators. I think administrators are pretty clear that professional development is important. At least school building administrators often recognize that. But I think as you go up to policymakers, to other folks that often it's easier to adopt curriculum than to pay teachers to go to a professional development, organize sub days, do the things that it takes to actually support educators enacting the program or curriculum that was adopted by the school or district. Yeah. Well, first of all, the, the CTE and the AP discussion, I love that. That was it's definitely something that people need to consider is what kind of computer science are you implementing and how and who is this going to basically be marketed for in terms of students who would attend it. But then the, the administrative support, the PD side of things, it reminds me when I was the coding mentor for the last district that I was working in, I was arguing with an administrator saying like, look, they need professional development. They don't have the content knowledge on this. Literally everybody has come from some other subject area, said they want to learn this thing but they don't know how to do computer science. And their argument was, well, I teach people who have never taught math before how to do that, so all you need is good pedagogy. And it's like, no. The difference between that is, in order to get a degree in education, you have to go through, like, what, 12 some odd years of math classes? You've seen people teach this. They've done the content area for at least a decade of their life. Computer science, they may have never even like seen what code looks like before. This is completely different. It's like asking somebody to teach Russian when they've never seen it, heard it, spoken it, etc. And now you're asking them to do that without professional development. Like, good luck with that. Right. And what they'll do is they'll do a Google search, find the first little tutorial or video, or and then we'll have low quality computing for probably for the teachers who work with the students who need it the most. So you mentioned your work with exploring computer science, the curriculum that you helped develop. What were some of the big things that you learned while creating that curriculum? Wow, there was a lot of big things. One was that we started by teacher sourcing the curriculum, which was great fun. But we also learned that designing curriculum was more than just putting ideas from teachers together, that having a thread and a spiraling approach required that careful design, particularly with an inquiry-based curriculum, because we want to make sure that the concepts percolate out, but then are built on later on. So thinking about how to get ideas from the field, from teachers into curricular materials, but also curate them in a way that is cohesive across these multiple voices, that was a big learning piece. And also being okay with the fact that some of our links are going to expire the day after we release a new edition of the curriculum, that really believing in the teachers to say, okay, that's another example of a, that the professional disposition will carry the curriculum, that we think of the curriculum as the notes on the page, but the PD is sort of the symphony where it comes alive. So understanding what the curriculum could do, should do, how it supports teaching and learning, but also understanding that it is not standalone. Maybe that was just my own learning around that piece. 
And I think another thing I learned is that curriculum is not apolitical, that there's been pushback over the years about various parts of the curriculum. At one point, we were asked by a funder, and after some deliberation, we did take out a lesson because the funder was uncomfortable with the lesson. And the lesson was about the martinlutherking.org site and about fake news and about white supremacy, you know preying on adolescents on the internet to join their hate groups. And we thought that was an important lesson. Well, other people felt that that could get misread and that we'd be having all these kids go to the website and clicking on it, which our curriculum never asked them to do. So I think I also learned that doing the work of equity-based curriculum is not always going to make people happy. They want equity and inclusion, built on whiteness. And sometimes having some of these other lessons get some of this pushback because curriculum is not apolitical. So that was a lesson too. And I think we're going to be reintegrating that into our curriculum, because I think if there's ever a time to talk about this part of the internet and the way that computer science has led to the hateful discourse, white supremacy in this country, This is part of the naming that our field is not all good and that computer science is not deterministic to create more people to help support such websites and technologies that we need to have students be aware and informed of of these types of lessons. So I'm also aware of opportunities that continue to present themselves, but sort of the political climate in which we're able to continue to support exploring computer science with funds to, frankly, which go to teachers and professional development support. How do you design for equity? And what advice would you give for other educators who, like, even if it's just a lesson and they want to design with accounting for equity, what advice would you give? In terms of designing for equity, I think about opportunities for students to find their different identities within the curriculum. So thinking about many different ways that different students can connect in. So not having the same assignment, I mean, it could be the same assignment with the same criteria, but allowing students to really find themselves, find people who look like them, but also find people who think like them, who have values like them, who have extracurricular hobbies like them, who might be an athlete like them or an artist. And I think finding those opportunities are really particularly useful in curriculum. I also think that we have some historical roots that we should start integrating into curriculum as well to tell some of the hidden tales around the history of computing and the people in them. If I had some extra time, this is something that I would love somebody to do for K-12 is some curriculum around Alan Turing and Grace Hopper and Catherine Johnson, other people who have had an impact in this field, whose stories have not been told, or when they're told, they're sort of outside of the curricular content. So I would also hope that as people are designing for equity going forward, that they're thinking about making sure that computing isn't being perceived as something that, you know, was invented in Silicon Valley in the late 20th century, but something that is bigger than that, that has had more participation of that, and that tells some of the counter stories about the field and what it can do in addition to 
the field as a technology. I think our biggest mistake with computing curriculum is we treat it as a technical knowledge when really it's a social science in terms of social people. This is not a natural science. We have created this and we have designed this and we have written the algorithms and we have bought the devices and put them in our homes. And we have made choices every step of the way. There's nothing sort of natural about computing as a field. So I think the more curriculum design that presents that more holistic vision of computing, rather than just the technical dimensions devoid of all sociocultural context, will be really generative way of designing for equity and inclusion. So if you had the ability to wave a magic wand and like, here's the ideal curriculum, whether it's like a variation of ECS or its own thing, what would you include in that? You know, one thing, as much as I'm not a big person on tools, I love Ron Eglash's culturally situated design tools and wish we had more of those to develop some content and curriculum around because I think it's a nice sort of approach to computing. What excites me about that approach is it's basically ethnic studies for computing, which is what we should be doing anyway. And I really appreciate that perspective and wish there were more resources along that way. I think a major problem just in K-12 is connecting the dots between grade bands, particularly K-12 formal education, but also those informal opportunities. What does it mean when we do scratch in second grade and sixth grade and 10th grade? And maybe in at UC Berkeley as a CS0 class, maybe it's layering and building on each other each time, just like we teach students to write a paragraph when they're younger and they're still writing paragraphs in college, but it's getting more sophisticated. Or maybe it's the same intro scratch activity. We don't really know. And I think that's, for me, it's getting that grade band cohesion, not just written down as standards, but actual curriculum where we can point to that does that threading between grades, between schools. So we start thinking about things from a student experience instead of a program experience. So if my kid went to kindergarten next week, where would they be in 12 years, right? What would that experience be like? And I think my magic wand would be to have the resources in place to support that trajectory rather than a whole bunch of opportunities that may or may not be connected across that experience. And how have you iterated on your own understandings of either education or CS education over the years? Like, how do you, being like a practice nerd musician, I was trying to think of how do I improve upon my abilities? What is your version of practice? How does that look like for you in education? I think there's a couple different ways. One is I see a nice synergy between my research and my college teaching. So a lot of the exploring computer science lessons, for example, I infuse into my college teaching. And then we have conversations around sort of educational design and pedagogy and liberatory approaches to education based on those. And that helps me both appreciate what's going on with teachers I work with because I'm having similar experiences, but also reflective places of areas of growth for myself. Mm -hmm. 
I would say, honestly, though, the place that I feel like I am get the most professional development is hanging out with my colleagues, both my teaching, K-12 teaching colleagues, and my university scholarly colleagues in different areas who say, well, that's great, but what does computer science mean when we think about it in terms of Native people and sovereignty? And then I pause and I think, wow, that's a really good question that I probably wouldn't have gotten from hanging out with mostly, you know, these folks. And so I think I'm fortunate enough to be in a scholarly area where we can have those conversations in a department that is built on people with different areas of expertise, but a common commitment to social justice and decolonization. And so some of those threads continue to inform that theory nerd in me about almost puts pebbles in my shoes of like, okay, I've been doing anti-racist education, but have I really been thinking about decolonization and what it means in terms of computer science education? And if I haven't, okay, now who do I need to talk to? What do I need to read? What do I need to do? And so I think just being around those people with both similar areas and different areas has really continues to provide reflective fodder and conversations for me. Yeah, that is also something that I highly recommend. Any, like whether it was a new doc student coming into a program or just like another teacher, I always recommend read outside of the field. Like just keep learning from other people that you're not used to hearing from the same discourse in the field. Try and get a different perspective and apply it into it. You learn so much from that practice. One of the questions that I, I mentioned that I, I love to ask is talking about how do you prevent this burnout? And in particular, with the research on access and equity and social justice and liberatory practices, like when you actually sit down and really think about that, and that's what you do like all day, every day, that can lead to burnout very quickly because it can be very depressing. So how do you personally try and take care of yourself while also engaging in these heavy topics? Good question. I think, again, relying on colleagues and friends and having these conversations so it doesn't feel like it's a solo endeavor or such a load because it can be, you know, systemic racism is not the easiest to swallow. And, you know, as a white person, I am very conscious of how I can sort of turn off the computer and walk into the grocery store and have an experience that is validating all the systemic racism, but validating it from a place that continues to give me privilege. And that can be challenging as well. I believe in self-care. I like to get sunshine. It's the opposite of the computing part. It reminds me of my Commodore 64 and my mother always coming up and saying, go outside and play, go climb a tree. And she would <laughs> kick me out of the house. And I tried to still do that. Like, okay, I've been at the computer, go down. And I like to garden. I found that really restorative for me to feel like my fingers in the soil and to grow and to nurture. And also I have always been a swimmer and I still swim. So that gives another layer to this, given that swimming is a metaphor on being stuck in the shallow end because swimming is a great form of self-care. And yet I finish this work and I often go pop to the swimming pool and I feel great and I have incredibly awesome exercise. And I look around myself and I'm surrounded by mostly other white people swimming at the swimming pool. So it's that self-care, but the constant, I mean, we live in a society where 
to get to my swimming pool nowadays, I have to have a reservation. Then you walk through either the women's locker room or the men's locker room to get to the pool. So it's almost the things are so clear how we do this gendering and this racing. And I can't, I never shake it because I think it's who I am. I think about these issues all the time, but I try to do the healthy exercise and the being grounded in my place and in my community to remind myself that these ideas and issues are all connected, but we can only work on it when we take care of ourselves and we're able to show up and do the work. Yeah. So at the time of the recording this morning, the interview with Nikki Washington released and in that one and in the interview with Joyce McCall, like we talk about double consciousness and how both of them being black cis women, like they are unable to escape that double consciousness. And it sounds like with what you're going through, you're still experiencing that double consciousness of knowing, oh, well, I'm in a situation of privilege and I recognize that. So you're seeing yourself from those two different angles of how you are fitting within it, but you're also trying to actively fight against it and recognize that it's problematic. So yeah, that can still be draining even when you're trying to engage in leisure. Yes. In fact, I'll share a funny little story. The other day I went to my swim practice and I was standing in the line outside. You have to have a reservation. One of my colleagues came out, she's a math educator and we were so happy to see each other, you know, six feet away at distance instead of on a Zoom call, we were chatting away. I went into the swimming pool and as you go in, because you have to have a reservation, you have to disclose your name and answer the COVID questions. And so I did so and about 20 minutes later, this woman leaned over and she said, can I ask you an awkward question? I said, sure. And she said, are you Joanna Good, the CS education researcher? And I thought it was going to be one of my students because I'm teaching on Zoom and we all, we live in a community. I said, yes. And she said, oh my gosh, I've read everything you've ever written. And turns out she had heard my name when I came in and she works for Google Philanthropy and she had just recently moved to Oregon, but it was me taking the time off from work to go to the swimming pool to have this workout that ended up having a double professional sort of encounter. <laughs> right. But again, within the, you know, is this the locker room banter, right? Am I in a privileged space to be having these conversations that I know historically have kept other people out of? So I think that double consciousness, you know, as that white person sort of understanding of how we navigate and maneuver in a world that was built for us structurally, but without being complacent with it is it's a difficult space to maneuver. And yet it's nothing compared to what I know, BIPOC, LGBTQ people, other folks who have been marginalized feel every second of every day. So speaking of your research, I'm curious, what do you wish more people understood about your research? What I think people maybe misunderstand is that this is about curriculum rather than about teaching and learning and equity. And I think curriculum is one of the vehicles along with policy and professional development. But I think it's so easy for people to hear exploring computer science or to hear that language and to think that the curriculum is what is the work rather than all those levels of curriculum that you listed before. And also the power of pedagogy being something that people develop over time and is beyond those single efforts. 
So I think that's one piece. And I think the other piece is that connection between classroom teaching and learning and policy. And maybe this isn't what people misunderstood, but what I hope people do understand is that double lens between what are the equity practices happening with teaching and learning and what are the structural equity practices that we put in place that support that teaching and learning and that we can't do one without the other. And I think we've had lots of examples of, hey, in this ideal classroom, these are great computer science knowledge that comes out, or here's some policy structures to get computer science instruction. But I believe, and I hope that my research continues to think about the place where we consider both of those ideas simultaneously, because without one, the other is inadequate. I'm also curious, what do you wish there was more research on that can inform what you do in the classroom? One of the areas is thinking about anti-racist curriculum and having more examples of that. I'm really thrilled about Nikki Washington's class at Duke. I can't wait to listen to the podcast. I want more of that, frankly. I think that's a really exciting place. I also would appreciate studies and scholarship around gender and computer science that goes beyond the binary that considers what it might mean to queer computer science, not just in terms of who the students are, but the way we have codified gender binaries in almost every single space in computer science and the damages it does to people in our systems. I think that is an incredibly important and needed area, particularly because we've been talking about gender and computer science for 30 years, 40 years, I don't even know how many decades, and yet we're still, it still ends up with, okay, what are we going to do to fix these girls or women, which one, it's not really about the deficits of girls and women, and secondly, gender is much more expansive than that binary. So I think that's an area that I would like to see more scholarship because I would like to cite that more scholarship. I feel a little limited in my own treatment of gender because this is one of those, let's read outside of other fields, certainly, and thinking about gender's performativity and such is helpful, but I don't think that discourse is quite entered in computer science the way I hope. One of my graduate students, Max Gorondinsky, is exploring this as his dissertation research too. So I'm very excited about that area. And I would just say less gap gazing in general. Like we know the disparities, we know the statistics. I think less focus on the pipeline. I'm troubled by that metaphor. Maybe that's changed since that article too. It's not the metaphor. It's problematic for many ways. I think we need to think about success in computing that is not measuring how many students want to go on to technology industry or even majors, that there's a lot of ways to be successful. And we're almost limiting by that singular treatment of thriving in a perhaps hostile space as the metric of success. So that's something also I've been thinking about in terms of more research, and that would be more qualitative descriptions, that thick, rich descriptions of what success might look like and what impact might look like that doesn't end up in a chart that shows the same education debt over and over again. Yeah, there's so much that I just wanted to like snap my fingers with that, like that heavily resonates with a lot of things that I've been exploring. One of the 
things that I'm working on is a paper was submitted. It was for a music education journal and it was myself, a non-conforming individual, a trans woman and trans man, like talking about from our perspectives within the trans and non-binary community, like here are some suggestions for you in the music education field because the narrative has been kind of taken over by well-intentioned cis individuals, but not actually people within the community talking about it. So like one of the reasons why I speak up as like, hey, I'm non-binary. Hey, like I am not a heterosexual male. Like it's not discussed enough. But I will say that computer science is actually a little bit further ahead in terms of including at the very least an other category or a fill in your own blank category on gender. Whereas some of the music education stuff that I've looked at, they still don't even have that. So like that is a good thing. But like you were saying with the gender gaps, we tend to talk about, well, where are the women in computer science fields? But there's an episode that's going to release next week from the time of this particular recording on uh, Paulo Freire's book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. So like in that chapter four discussion that I do, I say, okay, well, if we're going to problematize the lack of women in computer science, why are we not problematizing the lack of men in uh, elementary education? It's 80% white female. So like, if we're going to say that this is an issue to have this kind of imbalance, then we need to talk about it everywhere and not just highlight certain demographic differences over others. But that's my own little rant. <laughs> do you have questions for myself or for the field? I think just the question for the field is, the one I raised earlier, how do we grow, expand computer science? I'm a big believer in computing. I used to think, okay, how do we grow opportunity? Maybe my own progress or growth over the last decade is looking at my three children and saying, which one would I say should not take computer science? Which one is it not important for? And since I couldn't reach an answer, I thought, okay, which other child can I think would not benefit from computer science? And I couldn't think of a child who would not benefit. So I've come to the realization that I really do believe it's critical, fundamental literacy, maybe reading the code to the Freire pun on what it means to be literate, right? And the importance of that. So I think my question, given that computer science is important and a critical literacy, how do we grow it and not have the same gaps? How do we grow it and not just grow it for the groups of people who have always benefited in this country? And as somebody who's thinking about equity inclusion first, I wouldn't think that our work is successful if the gap continues to be there. So the question is, how do we do computer science for all and not perpetuate the access and achievement gaps, right? Literacy for all, we still have those achievement gaps. Algebra for all, we still have tracking and achievement gaps. How will computer science for all be different? So that's the question that I leave for the field is how do we grow things without perpetuating the privilege that's already been there? Yeah, and how do we as a field if we think it should be for everyone, but we also acknowledge that not everyone's going to become a computer scientist for a career, how do we engage in computer science for leisure, for mental health, for like other reasons besides future jobs and whatnot? That's one of the big things that I've tried to push for in the content that I create, like whether it's the curriculum or the podcast is like, look, it doesn't have to be for jobs. Like I proposed to my wife by modifying a video game. I changed the code, put our dogs in it. Like that was for fun. It wasn't for a job. It was just something I wanted to do. And there's this whole side of research on mod culture 
that is often not discussed in computer science education, which is weird because like it's programming, like, and there's also the hardware side of things as well. So like it talks about everything related to computer science, but it's for informal practices for fun. And yet as a field, we rarely mention it. I think that's a really important point. I think the formal and informal people are rarely talking. Or if they're talking, we're not having those conversations about the synergy that we really could be. And I think that's a, a ripe area for what does it mean to have sort of a supportive ecosystem of a computing education ecosystem that doesn't only live in the summer camps. It doesn't only live in the fifth grade curriculum. It doesn't only live in the AP class. There's some thought in how these students can build on these learning in different spaces to ultimately get a much more well-rounded and situated experience in computing. Where might people go to connect with you and the organizations that you work with? People can always email me at goodj at uoregon.edu. Our Exploring Computer Science website is also a great resource at www.exploringcs.org. We have a great list of research articles associated with ECS on that website, as well as eTextiles resources and a new AI unit. And people can always feel free to reach out to me at any time. I'm happy to have these conversations. And with that, that concludes this week's episode of the CSK8 podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to that interview as much as I did. And I hope you consider sharing this with another educator that might benefit from it or providing a review on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Again, you can find links to much of what we talked about in the podcast by going to the show notes. And I hope you stay tuned next week for another Unpacking Scholarship episode and two weeks from now for another interview. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week and are staying safe.